Section 8 of Police. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. Police by Robert W. Chambers. The Immortal, Part 2. On Monday, the first day of March, 1915, about 10.30 a.m., we came in sight of something which, until I had met Mink, I never had dreamed existed in southern Florida, a high range of hills. It had been an eventless journey from New York to Miami, from Miami to Fort Coquina. But from there, through an absolutely pathless wilderness as far as I could make out, the journey had been exasperating. Where we went, I do not now even know. Sawgrass and water, hammock and shell mound, palm forests, swamps, wildernesses of water oak and live oak, vast stretches of pine, lagoons, sloughs, branches, muddy creeks, reedy reaches from which wild fowl rose in clouds where alligators lurked or lumbered about after stranded fish, horrible mangrove thickets full of moccasins and water turkeys, heronry more horrible still, out of which the heat from a vertical sun distilled the last atom of nauseating effluvia. All these choice spots we visited under the guidance of the wretched mink. I seemed to be missing nothing that might discourage or disgust me. He appeared to know the way, somehow, although my compass became mysteriously lost the first day out from Fort Coquina. Again and again, I felt instinctively that we were traveling in a vast circle, but Mink always denied it, and I had no scientific instruments to verify my deepening suspicions. Another thing bothered me. Mink did not seem to suffer from insects or heat. In fact, to my intense annoyance, he appeared to be having a comfortable time of it, eating and drinking with gusto, sleeping snugly under a mosquito bar permitting me to do all camp work, the paddling as long as we used a canoe, and all the cooking too, claiming, on his part, a complete ignorance of culinary art. Sometimes he condescended to catch a few fish for the common pan, sometimes he bestirred himself to shoot a duck or two, but usually he played on his concertina during his leisure moments which were plentiful. I began to detest Samuel Mink. At first I was murderously suspicious of him, and I walked about with my automatic arsenal ostentatiously displayed. But he looked like such a miserable little shrimp that I became ashamed of my precautions. Besides, as he cheerfully pointed out, a little coonty soaked in my drinking water would have done my business for me if he had meant me any physical harm. Also, he had a horrid habit of noosing moccasins for sport, and it would have been easy for him to introduce one to me while I slept. Really what most worried me was the feeling which I could not throw off that somehow or other we were making very little progress in any particular direction. He even admitted that there was reason for my doubts, but he confided to me that to find these Coquina Hills was like traversing a maze. Doubling to and fro among forests and swamps, he insisted, was the only possible path of access to the undiscovered Coquina Hills of Florida. Otherwise, he argued, these Coquina Hills would long ago have been discovered and it seemed to me that he had been right when at last we came out on the edge of a palm forest and beheld that astounding blue outline of hills in a country which has always been supposed to lie as flat as a flabby flapjack. A desert of saw palmetto stretched away before us to the base of the hills. Game trails ran through it in every direction like sheep paths. A few moth-eating Florida deer trotted away as we appeared. Into one of these trails stepped Samuel Mink, burdened only with his concertina, and a box of cigars. I, loaded with seventy pounds of impedimenta, including a moving picture apparatus, reeled after him. He walked on jauntily toward the hills, his pearl-colored bowler hat at an angle. Occasionally he played upon his concertina as he advanced, 
Now and then he cut a pigeon wing. I hated him. At every toilsome step, I hated him more deeply. He played Tipperary on his concertina. See him, old top? He inquired, nodding toward the hills. I'm a man of my word, I am. Look at him. Take him in, old sport. And remember, each and every hill is guaranteed to contain one bonafide cave lady. What is the last vanishing traces of an extinct and disappearing race? We toiled on. That is, I did. Bowed under my sweating load of paraphernalia. He skipped in advance like some degenerate twentieth-century fawn, playing on his pipes the unmitigated melodies of George Cohen. "'Watch your step!' he cried, nimbly avoiding the attentions of a ground-rattler, which tried to caress his ankle from under a saw palmetto. With a shudder, I gave the deadly little reptile room and floundered forward a prey to exhaustion, melancholy, and red bugs. A few buzzards kept pace with me, their broad black shadows gliding ominously over the sun-drenched earth. Blue-tailed lizards went rustling and leaping away on every side. Floppy, soft-winged butterflies escorted me, a strange bird which seemed to be dressed in a union suit of checked gingham. I flew from tree to tree as I plodded on, and squealed at me persistently. At last I felt the hard coquina underfoot. The cool blue shadow of the hills enveloped me. I slipped off my pack, dumped it beside a little rill of crystal water which ran sparkling from the hills, and sat down on a soft and fragrant carpet of hound's tongue. After a while I drank my fill at the rill, bathed head, neck, face, and arms, and, feeling delightfully refreshed, leaned back against the fern-covered slab of coquina. "'What are you doing?' I demanded of Mink, who was unpacking the kit and disengaging the moving picture machine. "'Gen ready,' he replied, fussing busily with the camera. "'You don't expect to see any cave people here, do you?' I asked with a thrill of reviving excitement. "'Why not?' "'Here. Certainly. Well, the first one I seen was a drinking into this brook. "'Here, where I'm sitting?' I asked incredulously. Yes, sir, right there. It was this way. I was lying down, trying to figure the shortish way to Fort Coquina, and wishing I was nearer Broadway than I was to the equator, when I heard a voice say, Blub, blub, muck, muck. And then I seen two cave ladies come softly stealing along. Well, where? Right there where you are a-sitting. Say, they was lookers. And they come along, quiet, like two big-eyed deer, kinder nosing the air and listening. Gee whiz, thinks I. Longacre ain't got so much on them Danes, and at that one of them wore a wildcat skin and that's all, and a wildcat ain't big, and t'other she sported Pam Leaf pajamas. So when they don't see nothing around to hinder, they just lays down flat and takes a drink into that pool, looking up every swallow like little birds listening and kind of thanking God for a good square drink. I knowed they was wild girls soon as I seen em. Also they says to one another, blub blub, kind of softly. All the same, I've seen wilder ladies on Broadway, so I took a chance to where I was squatting behind a rock. So says I, Ah there, sweetie, blub blub, have a taxi on me. And with that, they is on their feet, quivering all over and nosing the wind. So first I took some snapshots at him with my bijou camera. I guess they sending me all right, for I seen their eyes grow bigger. And then they give a bound and was off over the rocks, and me after him. Say, that was some steeplechase until a few more K-ladies come out on them rocks above us and huff chunks of coquina at me. And with all that dodging and ducking of them there rocks, the cave girls got away, and I seen em and the other cave ladies scurrying into little caves. One whisked into this hole, another scuttled into that. Bing! All over. All I could think of was to light a cigar and blow the smoke in after the best-looking cave girl. But I couldn't smoke her out, and I hadn't time to starve her out. 
So that's all I know about this here prehistoric and extinct race of vanishing cave ladies. As his simple and illiterate narrative advanced, I became proportionally excited, and when he ended, I sprang to my feet in an uncontrollable access of scientific enthusiasm. Was she really pretty? I asked. Listen, she was that peachy. Enough! I cried. Science expects every man to do his duty. Are your films ready to record a scene without precedent in the scientific annals of creation? They sure is. Then place your camera and your person in a strategic position. This is a magnificent spot for an ambush. Come over beside me. He came across to where I had taken cover among the ferns behind the parapet of Kakina, and with a thrill of pardonable joy, I watched him unlimber his photographic artillery and place it in battery where my every posture and action would be recorded for posterity if a cave lady came down to the waterhole to drink. It were futile, I explained to him in a guarded voice, for me to attempt to conjole her as you attempted it. Neither playful nor moral suasion could avail, for it is certain that no cave lady understands English. I thought of that too, he remarked. I said, blub blub, muck a muck, to him when they started to run, but I didn't do no good. I smiled. Doubtless, said I. The spoken language of the cave dweller is made up of similarly primitive exclamations, and you were quite right in attempting to communicate with the cave ladies and establish a cordial entente. Professor Garner has done so among the simian population of Gaboon. Your attempt is most creditable, and I shall make it part of my record. But the main idea is to capture a living specimen of cave lady, and corroborate every detail of that pursuit and capture upon the films. And believe me, Mr. Mink, I added, my voice trembling with emotion, no academician is likely to go to sleep when I illustrate my address with such pictures as you are now about to take. The police might pull the show, he suggested. No, said I. Science is already immune. Art is becoming so. Only nature need fear the violence of prejudice, and doubtless she will continue to wear pantalettes and common-sense nighties as long as our great republic endures. I unslung my field glasses, adjusted them, and took a penetrating squint at the hillside above. Nothing stirred up there except a buzzard or two wheeling on tip-curled pinions above the palms. Presently, Mink inquired whether I had lamped anything, and I replied that I had not. They may be snoozing in their caves, he suggested, but don't you fret, old top. You'll get what's coming to you, and I'll get mine. About that check, I began, and hesitated. Sure, what about it? I suppose I'm to give it to you when the first cavewoman appears. That's what? I pondered the matter for a while in silence. I could see no risk in paying him this draft on sight. All right, I said. Bring on your cave dwellers. Hour succeeded hour, but no cave dwellers came down to the pool to drink. We ate luncheon, a bit of cold duck, some kunti bread, and a dish of palm cabbage. I smoked an inexpensive cigar. Mink lit a more pretentious one. Afterward, he played on his concertina at my suggestion, on the chance that the music might lure a cave girl down the hill. Nymphs were sometimes caught that way, and modern science seems to be reverting more and more closely to the simpler truths of the classics which, in our ignorance and arrogance, we once dismissed as fables unworthy of scientific notice. However, this Broadway fawn piped in vain. No white-footed dryad came stealing through the ferns to gaze, perhaps to dance to the concertina's plaintive melodies. So after a while he put his concertina into his pocket, cocked his derby hat on one side, gathered his little bandy legs under his person, and squatted there in silence, chewing the wet and bitter end of his extinct cigar. Toward mid-afternoon, I unslung my field glasses again and surveyed the hill. 
At first I noticed nothing, not even a buzzard. Then, of a sudden, my attention was attracted to something moving among the fern-covered slabs of coquina just above where we lay concealed. A slim, graceful shape half-shadowed under a veil of lustrous hair, which glittered like gold in the sun. "'Mink!' I whispered hoarsely. "'One of them is coming. This, this indeed is the stupendous and crowning climax of my scientific career.' His comment was incredibly coarse. "'Give me the dough,' he said without a tremor of surprise. Indeed, there was a metallic ring of menace in his low and entirely cold tones as he laid one hand on my arm. "'No welchin,' he said, "'or I put the whole show on the bum.' The overwhelming excitement of the approaching crisis neutralized my disgust. I fished out the certified check from my pocket and flung the miserable scrap of paper at him. "'Get your machine ready,' I hissed. "'Do you understand what these moments mean to the civilized world?' "'I sure do,' he said. Nearer and nearer came the leaf-white figure under its glorious crown of hair, moving warily and gracefully amid the great coquina slabs, nearer, nearer, until I no longer required my glasses. She was a slender, red-lipped thing, blue-eyed, dainty of hand and foot. The spotted pelt of a wildcat covered her, or attempted to. I unfolded a large canvas sack as she approached the pool. For a moment or two she stood gazing around her, and her close-set ears seemed to be listening. Then, apparently satisfied, she threw back her beautiful young head and sent a sweet wild call floating back to the sunny hillside. Blub blub, ran her silvery voice. Blub blub, muck muck. And from the fern-covered hollows above, other voices replied joyously to her reassuring call. Blub blub blub. The whole bunch was coming down to drink. The entire remnant of a prehistoric and almost extinct race of human creatures was coming to quench its thirst at this waterhole. How I wished for James Barnes at the camera's crank. He alone could do justice to this golden girl before me. One by one, clad in their simple yet modest gowns of pelts and garlands, five exquisitively superb specimens of cave girl came gracefully down to the waterhole to drink. Almost swooning with scientific excitement, I whispered to the unspeakable mink, begin to crank as soon as I move, and gathering up my big canvas sack, I rose and, still crouching, stole through the ferns on tiptoe. They had already begun to drink when they heard me. I must have made some slight sound in the ferns, for their keen ears detected it, and they sprang to their feet. It was a magnificent sight to see them there by the pool, tense, motionless, at gaze, their dainty noses to the wind, their beautiful eyes wide and alert. For a moment, enchanted, I remained spellbound in the presence of this prehistoric spectacle. Then, waving my sack, I sprang out from behind the rock and cantered toward them. Instead of scattering and flying up the hillside, they seemed paralyzed, huddling together as though to get into the picture. Delighted, I turned and glanced at Mink. He was cranking furiously. With an uncontrollable shout of triumph and delight, I pranced toward the huddling cave girls, arms outspread as though heading a horse or concentrating chickens. And totally forgetting the uselessness of urbanity and civilized speech, as I danced around that lovely but terrified group. "'Ladies,' I cried, "'do not be alarmed, because I mean only kindness and proper respect. Civilization calls you from the wilds. Sentiment, pity, piety propel my legs, not the ruthless desire to injure or enslave you. Ladies, you are under the wing of science. An anthropologist is speaking to you. Fear nothing, rather rejoice. Your wonderful race shall be rescued from extinction, even if I have to do it myself.' Ladies, don't run. They had suddenly scattered and were now beginning to dodge me. 
I come among you bearing the precious promises of education, of religion, of equal franchise, of fashion. Blub, blub, they whimpered, continuing to dodge me. Yes, I cried in an excess of transcendental enthusiasm. Blub, blub. And though I do not comprehend the exquisite simplicity of your primeval speech, I answer with all my heart, blub, blub. Meanwhile, they were dodging and eluding me as I chased first one, then another, one hand outstretched, the other invitingly clutching the sack. A hasty glance at Mink now and then revealed him industriously cranking away. Once I fell into the pool. That section of the film should never be released, I determined, as I blew the water out of my mouth, gasped, and started after a lovely, ruddy-haired cave girl whose curiosity had led her to linger beside the pool in which I was floundering. But run as fast as I could and skip hither and thither with all the agility I could muster, I did not seem to be able to seize a single cave girl. Every few minutes, baffled and breathless, I rested. And they always clustered together uttering their plaintively musical blub-blub, not apparently very much afraid of me, and even exhibiting curiosity. Now and then they cast glances toward Mink, who was grinding away steadily, and I could scarcely retain a shout of joy as I realized what wonderful pictures he was taking. Indeed, luck seemed to be with me, so far, for never once did these beautiful prehistoric creatures retire out of photographic range. But otherwise the problem was becoming serious. I could not catch one of them. They eluded me with maddening swiftness and grace. My pauses to recover my breath became more frequent. At last, deadbeat, I sat down on a slab of coquina, and when I was able to articulate, I turned around toward Mink. "'You'll have to drop your camera and come over and help me,' I panted. "'I'm all in.' "'Not quite,' he said. For a moment I did not understand him. Then under my outraged eyes, and within the hearing of my horrified ears, a terrible thing occurred. "'Now, ladies,' yelled Mink, "'all on for the finally. Upstage there, you red-headed little spot-grabber. Mabel, take the call. Now smile, the whole bloomin' bunch of you. What was he saying? I did not comprehend. I stared dully at the six cave girls as they grouped themselves in a semicircle behind me. Then as one of them came up and unfolded a white strip of cloth behind my head, the others withdrew from concealed pockets in their kilts of cat fur, little silk flags of all nations, and began to wave them. Paralyzed, I turned my head. On the strip of white cloth, which the tallest cave girl was holding directly behind my head, was printed in large black letters, Sunset Soap. For one cataclysmic instant, I gazed upon this hideous spectacle. Then, with an unearthly cry, I collapsed into the arms of the nicest-looking one. There is little more to say. Contrary to my fears, the release of this outrageous film did not injure my scientific standing. Modern science, accustomed to proprietary testimonials, has become reconciled to such things. My appearance upon the films and the movies in behalf of Sunset Soap, oddly enough, seemed to enhance my scientific reputation. Even such austere purists as Guilford, the Cubist poet, congratulated me upon my fearless independence of ethical tradition. And I had lived to learn a gentler truth than that, for the pretty girl who had been cast for Cave Girl Number 3. But let that pass. Adibenda est in jocando moderatio. Sweet are the uses of advertisement. End of section 8.